Good evening. Brilliant. It's great to see so many of you here tonight. Uh, thank you for coming. Hope that you are, have a good day and you are looking forward to being with us this evening. Um, I haven't even thought about what I'm going to say. It's, this, is, this is what happens when you don't give the talk. You're completely unprepared. <laughs> Let me introduce to you Em. <laughs> Hi. So. Is this working? Is this working? No, I need to turn it on. I'll turn it on later. Um, um, would you like to introduce yourself to us? Tell us a little bit about yourself. How long have you been at CCM? What do you do? That kind of thing. My name's M. My surname is short, but I'm not short. Uh, I've been at CCM for 10 years this summer. And I work in publishing. I sell books to booksellers. Including the Bible, which is quite exciting. She sells the Bible. Um, tonight we're thinking about the topic of sexuality. And we will hear a talk in two parts from M. There'll be a break in the middle, so you'll have a chance to go and get another uh, dessert and another glass of wine or a cup of tea or something. After the second talk, there'll be a chance to discuss uh, on our tables, and also we will have a question time before we close, hopefully by about 9.15. But we do understand if you need to run off before then. So let me pray, and we'll get going. Father God, we thank you so much that you are our good creator. You made us, and you know everything about us. Our sexuality was your idea in the first place, and it was a good idea. And as we consider this issue, what can, be, uh, can involve very powerful desires, what is a deeply personal issue, what is quite a confused issue in our culture, as we think about that tonight, we pray that you'd help us and give us greater clarity. Uh, we, we pray that um, uh, as perhaps it raises feelings that are painful or feelings of guilt and shame, we ask that you would deal gently with us as our good and gracious father, our sympathetic brother, and our loving husband. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Don't worry too much if you need to grab a dessert. Em's just going to get going so we, we get through this evening. Yeah, no judgment if you need seconds, or thirds in my case. Um, thank you very much for coming this evening. I don't know what else you'd be doing on a Friday night. Um, I'm certainly one who likes a Friday night in. And if, uh, particularly if Phil's out, I like to stick on a film that I know that he wouldn't like. And uh, hands down, the best film to come out of the early noughties was The Notebook. Yes, in agreement, yes. Don't shake your head. The notebook is iconic. I don't know how many times me and my gal pals gather together, put the film on, passing up and down a box of tissues, and then we talk about boys until the early hours. It was good times. Um, it really is a film that pulls on the heartstrings. It's young love torn apart in a moment of hot-headed anger, separated by an insurmountable class divide that's conquered by courage and true love, only to be separated again by declining ill health and finally reunited in death. 
It's got all the ingredients of a classic, which for the cynics among you, um, I'm sure just goes to show that there's nothing new under the sun. And indeed, there isn't really anything new under the sun when it comes to a romance. True love that conquers even death is what stirs us. We're moved by it in sometimes a really visceral way. It taps into an ache, a longing, a deep desire for something we know we don't have, but we know is there. And we know there's something that can satisfy it. Films like The Notebook turn this desire into a plot line, a story that we can follow. And where this story leads is often what we can end up setting our hearts upon. So when it comes to our desires, and particularly our sexual desires, we're thinking about tonight, it's important that we're captivated by the right story. Now, I'm aware that there will be a huge variety of life experiences in the room tonight. There'll be those for whom sex is a healthy part of their lives and something they enjoy. There'll be a number of others who feel ashamed of their sexual history and regret what they may have done in the past. There'll be others for whom sex has been a painful, traumatic experience that they're still coming to terms with. And I'm sure there'll be some of us who just find the whole thing a bit confusing. I'm just not sure what to think about it as a Christian or even why it's necessary. Now, I'm not going to be speaking to individual experiences, though there will be an opportunity to ask questions at the end. But what I'm aiming to do is to hold out the redeeming, empowering, radical hope of the gospel and explain how this transforms not just the way we think about sex, but the way we live out our sexual desires. It's the story of God's intense love for his people. And in reorienting our hearts back to God through Christ, our deepest desires will find complete satisfaction. Now, I suspect that when it comes to sex, the Bible story isn't the one we're used to hearing. Our 21st century Western culture is saturated with sex and it's extremely confused about it. It's safe to say that the cultural narrative is entirely incoherent. On the one hand, sex is grossly undervalued. It's become so prevalent in advertising and entertainment that it's lost any sense of deeper meaning and it's treated as not much more than a transaction. On the other hand, sex is grossly overvalued. It's become an essential life experience for a fulfilled life, with the search for one's sexuality a critical aspect of identity. I think the place where these two opposing narratives collide is probably Tinder. Sex is such an, ex- an essential experience to life that it must be available to everyone at any time at the swipe of a screen. There's something that just doesn't quite add up about that. It's pretty easy to see how far the culture has gone wrong on sex in simultaneously undervaluing it and overvaluing it. And as Christians, we can correctly identify that sin is at the root of this confusion. However, can we really explain why the Bible tells a better story and how that story even goes? As Christians, do we have a solid answer for why sex does have meaning and what that meaning is? How is it that we can say sex does matter, but it doesn't determine our life's worth? Or in the face of such an all-pervasive monopoly on the narrative, have we fallen foul of letting the culture write the story? Now, I think most of us in this room would have a fairly solid, 
if basic, moral framework for sex based on God's commands as written in scripture, which is that sex is for marriage. Sexual activity should only be conducted between a man and a woman in the lifelong commitment of marriage. Now this is good and true and right, and I'll be explaining why in the second part of this evening. But I want to take a moment to point out how I don't think this basic understanding is impervious to the cultural narrative. It's like having just the start of the story, or just the chapter headings, and without the full story, the culture's there to fill in the gaps. Even when we've put sex in its rightful place within marriage, we can still fall into the trap of undervaluing sex and treating it as a transaction, like the culture does. If you do your fair in the kitchen, I'll do my fair fair share in the bedroom. Which is actually just a step away from sex becoming a bargaining tool that's used to manipulate and control. Or, because we know we can't have sex until we're married, we overvalue sex and thereby reduce marriage to a ticket to sexual experience. Um, Now, I don't think this is the sole reason Christians get married, but I do wonder if you've ever hoped that Christ wouldn't return until you've experienced sex. I've had pals who've said that to me. Without an understanding of the true meaning of sex, without a reason for why we have sexual feelings in the first place, I think the most common mistakes we can make are just two sides of the same coin. We either give in to our desires or repress them. Depending on your temperament, knowing that we're not allowed to have sex can just make it all the more tantalizing or all the more terrifying. We desperately need to be reminded that God is the author of creation and he has written a story for sex and marriage that if we would dare to believe it, will lead us into true freedom and flourishing. Now I'm going to unpack the meaning of that story in more detail after the break, but first I want to show us the overarching biblical narrative, this great plot line that spans the whole length of scripture from the first book to the last It comes to the foreground in the book of Hosea, but crops up loads in other places, particularly in the prophets, in Ezekiel 16, Isaiah 62, and of course, Song of Songs. It's the greatest romance of all time. God has allured adulterous sinners with his love and faithfulness, and we get to see these Old Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Christ. The passage is on your little handout. Let me tell you a bit about who Hosea was. He was a prophet who lived in Israel after it split off from the southern kingdom of Judah. And it was just before Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. So that's the time that Hosea was living in. Israel's in a pretty bad way with a pretty bad king. God tells Hosea to go and marry a promiscuous woman. And through Hosea's lived experience, God shows the people that they've behaved in exactly the same way as she has. Hosea's tragic marriage to the adulteress Gomer is just a picture of the appalling spiritual adultery Israel has committed against God. So let's read chapter two. It's a poem from God's perspective of the woman representing Israel. I'm reading from verses 10 to 20. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I'll make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. 
I will punish her for the day she burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewellery and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. Therefore, I'm now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. The people have cheated on God with idols. When the Lord brought them out of Egypt and made promises of blessing and prosperity, the people promised in turn to obey God and keep his commands. It was a covenant, much more than a contract, a heartfelt vow freely given and bound by love. But the people betrayed their commitment to worship the one true God and turned to other little G-gods, burning incense to the Baals in verse 13. The picture of people's un- the people's unfaithfulness is, is really quite vulgar. Verse 10, Israel is portrayed as a lewd woman, decked out with bling and brazenly running after her lovers. She makes no secret of her adultery. Verse 12, she gets paid for it. You can really hear the righteous jealousy and pain in the voice of the Lord at the end of verse 13. She went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. The one who gave Israel all this abundance that she's not saying is from someone else is left betrayed and heart sore. It's not long after Hosea prophesied that God did fulfill his judgment to punish Israel. He let the Assyrians invade and destroy them in 722 BC, and the northern kingdom of Israel was no more. But the Lord is steadfast and ever faithful to his people. Even in the face of their flagrant adultery, he does not give up on them. See how in verse 14, God doesn't force Israel to come back. He allures her. He speaks tenderly to her. He gives the people another opportunity to turn back to him, to choose to respond to him with the same joy and affection they did when he first rescued them from the Egyptians. After Israel falls, the kingdom of Judah does enjoy a time of prosperity while it has a good king who's faithful to God. But just a couple of centuries later, the same fate befalls them and they're carted off by the Babylonians. So the prophecies we're encountering here were partly fulfilled in their time, but the Ross is still relevant for us now. And I particularly want to dwell on that final section from verse 16, this extraordinary future vision. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I vividly remember when I first heard this verse. Um, It was 13 years ago at my first CU weekend away as a university fresher. I remember where I sat in the room, where the speaker was, what the lighting was like, everything. 
because this verse utterly transformed my relationship with God. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. What? I had known God as my Lord and Saviour for years, but God relating to me like a husband? That's such an intimate relationship. It's so romantic, this story of our master becoming our husband. It's like a Cinderella story, except Cinderella is based on this story. Moving to verse 17. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. God's people will be cleansed from their idolatry. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. This is really new creation level restoration. God will get rid of all conflicts and heal the land. And then verses 19 and 20, God vows, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. Here is the pinnacle of the biblical narrative. God has promised to marry his people. My friends, this is the ache we feel in our hearts, in our very souls, when we watch a Disney movie or read Jane Austen or anything else. We, the church, are betrothed to God. And right now, we are waiting for our wedding day, the wedding supper of the Lamb, when the church will celebrate her union with Christ, her bridegroom. The ache is the wait The longing in our hearts to be loved and known and safe forever is real and it's there for a reason to draw us to God who has promised to love us and fully know us and keep us safe forever. How do we know that God is going to be this for us? Because God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus came and removed the names of the Baal from our lips when he paid the price for our betrayal by dying on the cross. Then when he rose from the dead and went back to the Father, he sent his spirit as a guarantee of our salvation and to prepare us for that day. Now this preparation is not easy. It is costly to be faithful to Jesus and it involves denying ourselves and waiting for that which is to come. The ache is not a comfortable place to be. But this is the vision of our future in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, 
For these words are trustworthy and true. Friends, this is the story we can set our hearts upon because it's going to come true. This is the hope that will sustain us when the Christian life feels impossible. God himself will satisfy every desire of our hearts. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are utterly amazed that in your love you would choose to come after a people who've cheated on you by worshipping created things rather than a creator. Thank you so much for giving us Jesus and making a way back to you through him. We pray that you would capture our hearts with your divine story of love and that it would fuel us to live our lives faithfully for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okie dokie, so what's going to happen now? We're going to have a little break. Um, Go and get your seconds, go and get your thirds and your refills. Um, There'll be about 15 minutes. You can start chit-chatting, start writing down any questions that you've got, uh, and then we'll come back and um, hear part two. Let us resume. Okay, so we've finished up our first session, having discovered that what we're truly longing for in our hearts is that we long to be known and fully loved by God. That's the feeling that all the romance in the world conjures up. And the astonishing news is God has promised to satisfy that desire himself. We've been betrothed to him in righteousness, justice, love, compassion and faithfulness. And we're waiting for that final day when we will acknowledge the Lord, when we will see him face to face. Right now, we're in the wait, and I'm going to talk about how we live in the wait shortly, but first I want to dig into the Bible's marriage story, because it's going to help us answer that question that culture gets so wrong. Why do we have sexual desires in the first place? What are sexual feelings for? Now, the principle that we need to grasp that's key to understanding the whole biblical narrative is this. God gives us physical signs to reveal spiritual truths. The visible reveals the invisible. And in particular, there are certain characteristics of our bodies which have special spiritual significance. Diving in the first book, Genesis 1 describes the creation of human beings like this. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The first and most important aspect of being human is that we are made in God's image, All of Christian human ethics hangs on this fact. Being made in the image of God endows a human being with inviolable dignity and incalculable value. Now, what's interesting is that the specific physical characteristic drawn out in Genesis 1.27 is that humans are made male and female. You see the pattern of that verse? In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What is it about this physical difference that reflects God's image? It's his relational nature. 
Did you spot the first person plural pronouns in verse 26? Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. This is God, the Trinity, making mankind, Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons existing in an eternal communion, designing humans to be made in relation to one another and their creator. Then we see in Genesis 2 that male and female are brought together in marriage. Verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Now, this one flesh union encompasses more than just the physical act of sex. Marriage is the uniting of two people, not just two bodies. Sex is the physical expression of the holistic one flesh union. And that's why casual sex is so damaging. Because sex is never casual. It cannot be separated from the person and the complexity of their emotions. Physical oneness necessitates whole person one fleshness. And that's why sex belongs in the lifelong commitment of marriage. But what is it about marriage that's so important? What spiritual truth does marriage reveal? In Ephesians 5, a classic, Paul breaks open that verse in Genesis 2 in what's got to be the biggest plot twist in the whole story of creation. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, he says, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Husband represents Christ and wife represents the church. When husband and wife come together in marriage, in one flesh, they are representing the union of Christ and the church. This, by the way, is why marriage is between a man and a woman, not two men or two women, because male and female represent the categorical difference between us and God, between Christ and the church. Can you see how the story is starting to come together? In the last session, we saw God betroth himself to his people. And in Ephesians 5, we see the fulfillment of that promise. It is Christ united to his church. That's the story that marriage tells. It's an earthly picture of a heavenly union. So, question. Will people who get married now still be married in heaven? Do we need to get married now to experience this heavenly marriage? What about people who never get married? Jesus himself answers these questions when he speaks about marriage in Mark chapter 12. He says, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. At the end of the world, when Jesus comes back and raises the dead to usher in the new creation, earthly marriage will be obsolete. We won't need the picture of marriage anymore because its purpose will be fulfilled will be experiencing the real thing. Marriage is like a trailer for a film. It's just a sneak peek of the main feature. No one could be said to have missed out if they've seen the film but not seen the trailer. That is to say, whether you get married in this life or stay unmarried, every single one of us who trusts in Jesus is being prepared for the ultimate marriage in heaven, that of Christ and the church. They're just different ways of being prepared. What's more, every single one of us who trusts in Jesus already experiences oneness with him spiritually. The church is already one with God in Christ through the Spirit. What's mind-boggling about this heavenly union, though, is that it will take on a new physicality. 
will have resurrected immortal bodies like Jesus' resurrected immortal body. The Christ we know spiritually now will be the man we see then. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, which we looked at on Sunday, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. It is this fully knowing that sexual desire points to. Sex is the physical expression of knowing someone completely. It's a connection with a whole person. But that connection is fleeting. It's temporary. And even a couple who've been married for 50 years only know each other in part. But God knows us in our totality and loves us with a divine intensity. Sexual desire is just a physical inkling of the spiritual intensity of God's love for us. This physical impulse that God has hardwired into our bodies is a cue for us to seek him, to know and be known by him. And while it might be buried under so much sin and shame, what we're truly longing for is to be united to God because that's what we were created for. Only God can satisfy our desires and he's promised to do so permanently in the new creation. But what do we do with them now? How do we live out our sexual desires in the context of the now and not yet promise of the new creation? And especially, how do we live with sexual desires that are so marred and distorted by sin? I'm sure that we're all too aware that our natural inclination as fallen people is towards sin. In Mark 7, Jesus explains that sin isn't just the wrong things we do, it's the whole orientation of our hearts. He says, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. Isn't it interesting that sexual sin is at the top of that list? So if we're going to conquer it, we need a new heart. And that's exactly what Jesus gives us. Just as God promised in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you to move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is the power of the gospel. God has set us free from the chains of sin when Christ died on the cross. And what's more, his Holy Spirit lives within us to rout out the last vestige of sin. With new hearts, we are free to live to please God, motivated by a love for him. Do you see how it's a, a work of our will and a work of the Spirit in that verse in Ezekiel? I will put my Spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. Just as Paul says in Philippians 2, it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And the more we know God, the more we love him and put it into practice, the more our hearts will be naturally inclined towards him. And since it's the heart that sets the direction of our desires, it is the reorientation of our hearts towards God that is the key to living out our sexual desires in a godly way, indeed a Godward way. Because after all, he is the one who made them 
and he is the one who will truly satisfy them. But this means we live in the wait. Regardless of our circumstances, at the end of the day, our desires remain unmet because God has yet to bring them to complete fruition. Trusting that God will satisfy our deepest longings requires us to remain in the ache of our desires. And that ache sometimes feels totally overwhelming. It's a whole person sensation. It's not just something we feel intensely in our bodies, but right down into our souls, a cry of our hearts to be seen and held and not feel so alone. For many of us here, that will be a familiar experience, whether it's because we have naturally high sex drives or whether we recognize it at certain times of the month. The wait can feel awfully long. Even those who are married know that a fulfilling sex life comes in seasons and unmet sexual desire in a marriage can be particularly hard. It's a painful way to be reminded that marriage doesn't fulfill all our needs for intimacy. And that's why cultivating deep friendships, particularly with other believers, is so important. It's the sibling relationship, not the spouse relationship, that will last into eternity. Lifting our gaze to the hope of heaven is what will sustain us through the wait. The more convinced we are of God's promises, the stronger we will become at resisting the temptation to sin. But that also means that the temptation will grow stronger. Now, um, I suspect that the sin most women struggle with here is lustful fantasy. And I'm defining that as constructing a narrative in your mind that is sexual in nature about a person who isn't your spouse. Now, what's the problem with this? Surely there are much worse sexual sins. It's not hurting anybody. And indeed, there are much worse and with more dire consequences. But it does do spiritual harm. When we lust after someone, we objectify them to gratify ourselves. What we're doing is denying their dignity as a person and we're directing our desires inwards. We sin against God when we take the satisfaction of our desires into our own hands. And we sin against other people when we use them to do so. Now, what I'm not saying is that experiencing sexual desire is sinful. Sexual purity does not equate to sexual repression. We do not need to be afraid of our sexual feelings or squash them down. We're wired to have a response to someone we find attractive, but it matters what we do with that. I've got three practical suggestions for how we can train our hearts and our minds to live out our sexual desires in a way that honours God and honours other people. Here we go, number one. Watch what you watch. Firstly, sexual desire is, is particularly motivated by visual stimuli, so I just think we need to be wise about the content that we see. Uh, I hope it goes without saying that pornography is completely unacceptable in any circumstance. But even a lot of mainstream TV and film that's being made nowadays is highly sexually explicit. And there are just some things that once seen can't be unseen. Secondly, um, rom-coms are never a rule of thumb for relationships. And they definitely don't have much wisdom in them. So just be mindful about what's informing your expectations Put it this way, when you finally see Jesus face to face, you will not regret not having seen every season of Bridgerton or Love Island. Um, and if it's on Channel 4, it's guaranteed to be complete trash. <laughs> um, if you only ever see one show for the rest of your life, I can tell you that show should be The Chosen. 
And if you've got another five minutes, then I can monologue about how great The Chosen is another time. Secondly, think noble thoughts. Instead, let us fill our minds with whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things as Paul encourages to do in Philippians. Memorising passages of scripture is a great way to do this. We're literally feeding our souls and training our consciences by God's word. Now, I have to admit, I'm a big thinker. There's nothing more I enjoy doing than sitting in a comfortable chair with a nice view and simply just cogitating. Um, But something that's begun to really shape how I live my life and particularly how I deal with suffering is spending time thinking about the new creation. It's as I commit more and more things to God in eternity, like perfectly meted out justice, work that's never futile, and a heart that always and only desires the right thing, I'm both better able to cope with life's disappointments and cherish the good things in this life as foretastes of the greater goodness that is to come. Thirdly, pray. Like, duh, pray. God is ready to equip you with all the grace and mercy you need, especially, especially in your weakness. There is nothing Satan loves more than a guilty conscience that's afraid to approach the holy God, whether that's guilt for having some done, thing, done something wrong or guilt about worrying about having done something wrong. Do not hesitate to confess your sin to your compassionate heavenly father. As Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. That's Jesus Christ. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In his book, Purposeful Sexuality, which I'm recommending, Ed Shaw records a brilliant prayer that he finds helpful whenever he feels a kick of attraction to someone. I think it's great. There's an acknowledgement of the feeling and a recognition that it comes from God, and it's there to draw us to him. It goes like this. Lord, I praise you for the divine beauty reflected in the form of this person. Now train my heart so that my response to their beauty would not be twisted downward into envy or lust, but would instead be directed upward in worship of you, their creator, as was your intention for all such beauty before the breaking of the world. It's been God's intention for us to be united to him in Christ through the Spirit since before time began. And it's our certain hope that a day will come when we will see him face to face. But for now, we live in the wait. Let's pray that we wait well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We long to honour you with our lives, since you've broken us free from sin, which leads to death, and given us the certain hope of eternity. Lord, will you direct our desires towards you, keeping our eyes firmly fixed on you and sustained by your promises in your word, until at last we see Jesus face to face. 
In his name, amen. Okay, so there is a time for discussion now. I've dropped some sort of discussion starters on the flip side of the handouts. And um, there is a Slido for you to ask your questions. The slide, if you go to sli.do, and the hashtag is desire. Desire, which is three syllables in my accent. Um, I'd encourage you to throw out the questions sort of around your tables and perhaps come up with one question as a table because you might find that the questions you have other people have, questions you have someone else might be able to answer for you, um, but drop it in the slide I'll give you about 15 minutes to chit chat amongst yourselves and then uh, Liz and I will ask and answer some questions. Brilliant. Um, shall we come back together now? Do um, keep putting some questions on if you've got them, or I can. You can actually. Don't have to put them on Slido. You can actually speak into a microphone like me with your question if you want to as well. So put your hand up as well if you've got any other questions. Um, okay, we are going to start with um, this one. If a woman or a man feels like they don't have any sexual desires, why would God create someone? without the spiritual pointer to know and be known by him. Um, do you want to talk to that one? Absolutely, yeah. So what I didn't nuance in what I was saying um, was, um, was a little bit more about our embodiment, uh, that, that how we're created with bodies, um, that we are embodied souls, we're ensouled bodies, um, and that humans are either male or female. You can't be human without being either male or female. Um, uh, let, so let me be more specific. Um, the fact that we have sexed natures, that we are male and female, that is the, 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 the physical characteristic from which sexual desire works with the inner working with the rest of our bodies. So even if um, a person just doesn't have very strong sexual desire, who just doesn't get aroused and just doesn't experience that uh, very much or if at all, uh, they still bear in their bodies the spiritual pointer towards God for they are either male or female and is the, the picture of male and female together is what points us to God. Brilliant. Um, okay, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. 1 Corinthians 7. Thoughts, Liz? <laughs> this is like a, the title of an essay or something. I don't know how long do you want me to speak You've got for? ten minutes. Uh, always unhelpful to take a verse out of context. Um, what, what, does it, what does Paul mean? If they can't control themselves, they should marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. Uh, here's a few thoughts um, in this chapter in 1 Corinthians 7 Paul, one of the big things he's saying is that singleness is good in fact singleness has some practical benefits that marriage doesn't have and he's, he's really banging the drum for singleness um, so in fact the verse before he says now to the unmarried and the widows I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do so he's saying I'm single, I think singleness is great. 
And actually, if you were going to ask my advice, I'd say stay single. But um, he also gives very wise advice, which is don't commit yourself to lifelong singleness if actually your sexual desires are really, really strong. Now, he's not answering every single question we have about whether I should get married, who I should marry, what do I do if I, if I try to get married and I can't. Um, but I think, I think he's just making that... Um, he's saying singleness is good, but, but one of the reasons God has given marriage is it's the, the, the sort of right context for sex. I'm sure there's much more I could say, but those are some thoughts. And since you asked for thoughts, and not a, <laughs> you didn't have a precise question, I'm going to leave. <laughs> um, Liz, you're, we're gonna, I'm going to ask you the dating as a Christian one, because we know you've done a dating seminar with Matt, so that one's going to be your next one. Um, 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 I get that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, but still it feels like I'm missing out. Surely it's better to have marriage now? Yeah. Oh, friend, that ache, that longing, that good desire for marriage is really real. And it hurts. It hurts to not have that realized. And I just want to recognize that, um, whoever that is, um, maybe many of you here, um, that's really real. And uh, it's a burden. It's a burden. Um, but God doesn't give us um, these burdens without cause, uh, without reason, um, without some ultimate meaning. Um, cling on to the fact that he will satisfy that desire in you one day. He will do that. He will. Um, yeah, it looks like marriage is, is better. Um, I'm sure those who are married here can tell you that it has all of its own challenges and all of its own downsides. Um, I often think that marriage, um, in marriage, uh, the highs are really high, but the lows are really low. And uh, it's just a, another way of being prepared. Um, so keep going. Keep pursuing the Lord. Keep putting sexual sin to death. Because when you see him face to face, it will be worth it. I'm just going to add a thought to that, which is, um, in my experience of singleness, uh, a chapter in the Bible I found particularly helpful is John chapter 4, where Jesus meets the woman at the well. And that's where he talks about his, his promise to us uh, of living water, i.e. the Holy Spirit, who, um, unlike a refreshing glass of water, which you know, will satisfy your thirst for a few hours, uh, his living water will satisfy eternally. And I think that's, yes, that's a, a satisfaction that we get in heaven, in the new creation, completely but it is a satisfaction that we can go now and in my life in my own frustrations with singleness um I'm engaged now but I have been single for some time um I think God has used frustration with singleness to drive me to him uh, and to show me actually that that he can satisfy and uh, that doesn't mean he takes away the longing or the desire for marriage the two things co coexist at the same time the desire continues, but at the same time, you really can have a satisfying communion with the Lord um, that helps you find contentment when it's hard and frustrating. Stay there, Liz. Okay. <laughs> Dating as a Christian, 
what's the right mindset to have, what to do if it doesn't work out. Um, it feels like you're spiritually committed to a person already. Well, I will refer you to a previous seminar uh, called Dating in the City um, that I did with Matt Fuller. But Is it on the website? It's um, on the Revive website. It's on the CCM website. Uh, if you can't find it, let me know. I'll give, send you a link. Um, I, I suppose maybe this question is coming from the place of dating can feel like dating as a Christian can feel like a very big deal, and it can feel like you know you're basically halfway down the aisle, and um, it's a bit scary. Uh, so one of the things we say in that seminar is it doesn't have to be a big deal. Um, yes, we don't want to treat dating casually like the world, but you don't have to know the outcome of your relationship when you start dating someone. You're, you're just getting to know them and working each other out and working out whether this is something that could end in marriage, or not end in marriage, but result in marriage. Um, that takes the pressure off, I think. Um, if it doesn't work out, that can be difficult, painful, sad. It can be relationally complicated in a church, um, but we haven't. It not, it's not a sign that we've done anything wrong. Um, we tried something. We sought God's wisdom, um, and it it turned out that marriage wasn't what God had in store for us. Um, so it's not a failure, and God can teach us thing, things through dating relationships that haven't uh, resulted in marriage. Uh, I think there's quite a lot more I could say about that, um, but little tidbits. Um, how can we direct our desires to desire God more? Mm. Um, oh, man, it, uh, cogitate upon God's word. Uh, cogitate being like think, chew over loads. Um, that's why I paired that with meditating on scripture and, and memorizing scripture. Um, just because, just the more that you say to yourself over and over again the words of the Lord they are living and active and they are sharp and they can pierce the soul um, so I, that's what that's genuinely what I'd suggest is memorize bits of scripture so that they can come to your mind uh, when you need them um, uh, prayer prayer spend time with with the Lord in prayer we are one with God through the spirit because of what Jesus has done so pray um, and talk about him. So that's why I brought in um, uh, cultivating deep friendships with other believers. Because the more that we talk about the Lord, the more that we're spending time with him communally, um, the more it kind of just feels a bit more real, you know? We're talking about things that are unseen, um, but we get to see the realisation or the, 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 the first fruits of the realisation of this union of Christ and the church when we together as the church um, start dwelling on and dwelling with our Lord Jesus Christ. Brilliant, thank you. Um, I'll take these two together, I think. So, um, how do we deal with persistent sexual desires without being repressive? Culture offers a whole range of outlets, but they seem dodgy. Um, and also, how, perhaps linked, how should we help our friends who are struggling with porn or masturbation addiction? Let's, let's go together. Um, 
Yeah. So let me take the, the, the second one first. Um, do not be ashamed to confess that sin um, to um, your close friends, um, if that is you. Um, confess it. Um, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, that's real. That's real. Um, don't let the devil tell you that that's not true. Um, if you hear that from a friend, um, there's loads of ways that you can help. You can, the, most, the, best, the most effective thing to help them is to pray for them. Pray for your friends. Um, I would also say um, uh, there are all sorts of like um, internet cookies and things that you can pop onto your browser that will send your history to, um, to a, an accountability um, partner uh, just to help keep you accountable. Um, if you're that friend, um, be brave and ask your pal how they're doing. Um, that's how you can be a really good, for a good friend, is being brave and asking the tough questions. The other question was, uh, yeah, what to do with such as I, when all around us, there's loads of different outlets. Uh, yeah, how do we not repress them? Yeah, it's... Because um, those feelings are real. They're, it's an embodied experience. What I've been talking about tonight is, is that the, the root of, of that embodied experience is actually a, a, a spiritual longing. Uh, so I think putting into practice all the, the, um, the spiritual disciplines that I've been, been talking about um, will help. Um, I genuinely think that as our um, hearts become, uh, um, as we fall more deeply in love with the Lord, I, th- I, th- I think we, we see our, um, uh, our sexual desires begin to slowly reorient like a, like a sunflower moving towards the sun. Um, uh, I myself have struggled with lustful fantasy in the past. It's as I have been preparing for this over a number of years, been doing loads of reading, loads of dwelling on scripture. It's, that is the power of God's word, is that sexual sin, thinking about someone in a lustful way, um, is, it's distasteful to me now. Before, I was like, oh, doesn't matter, it's not hurting anybody. It, it feels distasteful to me. Um, that's still an ongoing battle. But I remind myself that I, that is a battle I can win because I have the Holy Spirit, Spirit dwelling within me. And he's the power by which I fight sin and put it to death. Uh, what Emma said is really helpful. I think I just add some practical advice. Um, I think be conscious of what your, like, temp, um, the times when you're most uh, prone to temptation almost liable to give in to temptation. It's usually when we feel lonely or we're tired and our will to sort of fight against temptation is kind of drained. Um, so just be, I think, being aware of those, of those times in life when we're particularly, um, particularly vulnerable and perhaps uh, plan in things, whether it's time with a friend um, or something more productive to do with our time that's that's not going to lead us to, to sexual sin or uh, giving into whatever um, can, can just be a helpful, practical strategy, uh, redirecting our energy towards things which are, are good and productive. Oh, 
Yes. Love it. Hi, sorry, I couldn't be bothered to type it out and I also like chatting, so (laughs) you know me. Um, So the question is, what do you think the role of churches in sex education? Because most of us probably have sex education at school. I went to a school where it was very much taught that like casual sex was good. I'm sure sex education now in schools is even more wild. It's probably like, I don't even know what they're talking about, but yeah. I became a Christian at uni, and when they talked about, like, dating and sexuality there, it was very much like sexual sin wasn't defined, and I was really confused, and I hadn't read much of the Bible, so I was, like, really confused at what I could and couldn't do. Obviously, now, having been a Christian for, like, seven years, I very much, like, realised that, but at the time, I was just, like, lost as a young person and as an immature Christian, so just wondering what your thoughts are on... Um, yeah, I guess sex education for young people, but also, like, should we talk about it more? Yeah, great. Thank you, Claudia. Yeah, I'm going to take that with... with the, there's a question about um, teaching children, for those who have children. Uh, yeah, caveat, obviously, I don't have kids, and I'm not involved in the kids' work. So these are really just my, like, blue-sky thoughts on that. Um, got to start young, parents. you got to start young, because... Uh, in school, in culture, chil- children are hearing some pretty explicit stuff. Be brave, you've got to start young. You've got to do it, it's your duty as a parent. Um, start with Genesis, at the beginning. God made us male and female, boys and girls. I think um, highlighting that difference, that there is a difference between boys and girls, um, is a great place to begin. And then the obvious thing is they're different in their bodies. And then we talk about embodiment uh, and different experiences of, of being a boy and being a girl. Um, and then we can move into, okay, what do those body parts do? Okay, well, when mummies and daddies, and that's where I'm just like, oh, was it? Um, yes, um, I actually saw this week the Good Book Company advertise a book, a resource, a full resource package by Ed Drew, who, uh, who runs Faith in Kids um, to equip parents with that stuff. Um, I was going to go just have a look at it because it looks great. As for... Um, Chloe's question, how much does the church be involved? Flipping, like, we've got the best story ever. This is the best story. And it's the best story for human flourishing. So, yeah, I mean, this is why I suggested doing this seminar, so we can get talking about it. Um, yeah, talk about it amongst, um, amongst your friendship groups. Again, being brave and asking those questions, like, you know, Obviously, it sounds a bit weird, but like, how are you doing sexually? Um, maybe phrase it in a different way, go about it. Um, but get, get there, get there, be brave. You know, maybe ask it, you know, you know yeah. The good things to talk about. Um, uh, and, you know, talking about those things is just a great opportunity to remind us of the hope of heaven and why we have these bodies and what they're for. I think on the on books, um, I was just looking up, I couldn't remember, I knew it was called Gender, but I couldn't remember who it was by, Brian Seagraves and Hunter Levine on, which starts, it, it has different chapters for different age groups of children, so starting what do you teach, naught to fives, and it very much goes along the lines of start off in Genesis, build a framework for your children, um, so that's a good little book to look at, it's very thin, 
doesn't take long. But it's helpful to read. You can actually sort of just read through bits with your child. Um, so they're quite good. Um, and also, I think with children, the other thing is just um, we've sort of found don't be just completely afraid of what they're being taught at school. Um, but try and keep really open lines of communication so they're actually telling you what they're being taught. And then we found that that's led to um, really good opportunities to then talk about certain issues, which we probably should have talked about more but hadn't. Um, so I think that's the thing, not just being completely fearful that they're going to be taught something, absorb it, assume that is the worldview, um, but use it as an opportunity to, to talk to them about Christian things. Um, so that's the other thing I'd say on that, I think. Um, Sorry, I've lost my slide now. Um, uh, yeah. um, I'm really getting to the swing of this now. What time is <laughs> the yeah. um, I think you might have sort of covered this a bit, but why does God not allow us to be fully satisfied now, Em? Yeah, man. <laughs> because what he has planned is better. It's better. The new creation is going to blow our minds. It is better. That is why waiting is worth it. That's why he doesn't satisfy our desires now. All of these good things, you know, we do get a semblance of, of that satisfaction of desire, which is good, and that they're, you know, they're, they're food for the journey, those little foretastes. Even, you know, taking us out of the discussion about sexual desire, like, think of hunger. We hunger, like, you know, what, three, four, five times a day in my case. And then we eat a meal and it's great. And then we're hungry again. And it means we want food again. We keep coming back to it. That pattern is a point. That pattern is something that God's given us in our bodies to remind us that what we're hungering for is him. And he will satisfy those completely in heaven. We won't have this constant like sense of, oh, now it's gone and now I have to wait again. In heaven, none of that will be there all of our desires will be satisfied like beyond our wildest dreams it's worth the wait perhaps for you again um, um, what do we say to misogynists in Christian culture who take the spiritual picture of sex and marriage too far emphasising submission by the wife yeah um, I, I was going to partner that actually with um, how do you serve your spouse in a sexual manner yes. when you don't feel sexual desire yeah, yeah so I, um, I'm going to make an assumption in that question. Um, what I'm not going to talk about is um, Ephesians 5, where, um, uh, where wives are uh, uh, called to submit to their husbands. I think I'm going to assume that this question is talking about um, that, that um, age-old old wives' tale um, that we should just lie back and think of England. Yes, as dodgy as it sounds. It's as dodgy as it sounds. And uh, it's done an immense amount of harm in the church. Um, I think it came out of kind of the purity culture from America, kind of the 90s that bled into the noughties. If you were kind of a teenager growing up then, some of the, the literature that was coming out then um, kind of repackaged that. Um, yeah, it's harmful. It's harmful. Um, Uh, spouses are called to serve one another, serve one another, and that includes sexually. We serve one another sexually. Um, the in pursuit of the other's um, sexual fulfilment, if that is reciprocal, 
That means you both win. You both win. Um, uh, but just the, the way that sexual activity works, particularly um, female sexuality, um, is it requires a, a degree of, uh, of healthy selfishness. Um, as women, we just have to concentrate a bit more. Um, I think the mind is a really powerful tool in, um, in sex for women in particular. Uh, and uh, for husbands, that involves um, patience um, and um, challenge. Uh, and again, I think male sexuality is kind of designed for that. They, um, there is a sense in which they enjoy the, the pursuit of bringing pleasure to their wives because it's just a bit more difficult. Um, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Um, so you've got, for those who are married, that you must remember their reciprocal nature um, of sexual fulfillment. Um, at population level, just generally speaking, women obviously have a lower, oh, not obviously, women tend to have um, a lower sexual desire uh, and men have a slightly higher sexual desire. There's loads of um, uh, reasons for that. You can kind of go into evolutionary psychology, la la la. Um, have I thought about that in loads of detail in the context of what I've been talking? Probably not enough to give a fulsome answer. Um, uh, but uh, in a healthy marriage, um, that's just part of kind of the journey. Um, sex isn't something you kind of like get married and go into and you're like, well, we know how to do this. Um, really don't. Um, and that's part of the joy of, um, of being married and um, part of the, uh, the reassuring nature of um, participating in sexual activity within a marriage because it's safe. It's safe to, um, to kind of be figuring it out. Is there anything I'd like to say on that? No, if you've got any questions, come back to me. I mean, I think it's good as well if, that's, if it is a part of the being one flesh in every way to try to keep that part you. of your marriage um, as a positive and, and growing and helpful yep. thing. Yeah. Um, and that might... I mean, I think often like before your marriage... And it might be very difficult not to, you know, to, to keep control of those sexual urges. After you've been married for a few years, you might have had kids, you might have a job that, you know, you've got very long hours, whatever. It can seem a less attractive thing to do sometimes. Um, but I think if that is the picture of how a marriage works in the best way, then... Um, and there are all sorts of different issues people can have, it's good to try and work towards that still being a healthy part of marriage. Um, there's quite a funny video that we watched at one of the marriage refresher mornings about a couple who have been married for a while, and it's this whole song, it's, not, it's on YouTube, but it's about how, you know, they only have, ever have sex on a Tuesday night, and it's after they've put the bins out, and, you know, all this sort of thing. Um, and there were a few sort of, you know, nervous giggles around the room. Um, but, you know, so... It's sort of working out the reality of life, and but knowing that that is a really important part of, of marriage, um, 
and keeps you growing um, as a couple together and serving and encouraging one another in your faith as well as everything else. Yes, one thing I'd add on to that which um, really really helpfully just jogged my memory. Um, Sex is a whole person thing. So it involves your emotions. I haven't talked in loads of detail about our emotions um, tonight. I've sort of implied in in a few places. Um, Emotional intimacy fuels sexual intimacy, Uh, particularly for women. um, The emotional intimacy kind of has to come first. And it just tends to be the other way around for men, um, that the physical intimacy is what drives the emotional intimacy. Um, So I think emotional intimacy in a marriage is absolutely crucial crucial and that is what is going to fuel and drive sexual intimacy sorry can you say that yeah okay <laughs> using exactly the same words yeah. yeah emotional intimacy is crucial in a marriage because it's what fuels sexual intimacy particularly for women the emotional intimacy kind of comes before sexual intimacy Um, And it just tends to be the other way around for men. That physical intimacy is what drives the emotional intimacy for them. It's a real expression of that emotional intimacy. Um, So in a marriage, um, uh, emotional intimacy, sharing one's feelings, validating the other's feelings is crucial. And that is what tends to draw a couple together. And I wonder as well, that's just part of... um, uh, you know, what can, what can fuel the, the temptation when you're dating, when you're engaged? You are just getting more and more emotionally intimate um, and a bit spiritually intimate. And yeah, that you do just want to realise that physically. That's how we're wired. That's how we're wired. Um, yeah, we don't want to forget that, um, that all of these things are connected as one. Well. The emotional intimacy is crucial for driving sexual intimacy. Do we need to draw stumps or...? I think there was one more. There was one more. Do you want to take it? Um, was it about intersex? What about those who are biologically intersex in terms of pointers to the nature of God? Yep, sure. So, um, uh, intersex, this is a biological condition. Um, to my knowledge, I think there are about 16 in known intersex conditions. Um, I might be wrong with that. It might be a bit more. Um, but at a population level, it's about uh, 0.2. 0.012 percentage of the global population that could be diagnosed as um, biologically intersex. Um, of those conditions, uh, most of them um, uh, do manifest in ways where it's um, clear whether someone is male or female. Um, it, you know, for some conditions they might have both. Um, male and female genitalia, in other conditions it might just be genetically and they have one sort of complete set of male or female genitalia. Um, it really varies. There are some people who just who will never know. They might have an extra um, X chromosome, XXY, or um, three Xs, this whole... Yeah, it's um, a lot of them are, are genetic. Um, that does not um, accept them from the picture of male and female and what that points to. Um, I'm sure it, it would affect them in, in loads of ways in, in how they experience their sexuality, uh, but it doesn't disqualify them. Um, the human race is undeniably um, binary, male and female. 
Um, there's no like third gender. Intersex people aren't a third gender. Um, there's male and female, and every human um, bears that in their body, bears that, that greater picture um, of Christ in the church. That is all. Just going to have a very quick thought, which is marriage is not the only image that God has given us, or not the only life experience that God has given us um, to teach us about our relationship with him. It just happens to be an image which is particularly powerful, that runs very, the desire for which runs very deep in our hearts. Um, and it's not, it, it has lots of facets which speak of, of our relationship with Christ and the, with, uh, with God. Um, but there's lots of other images in the Bible that God gives us, lots of other relationships, particularly father to child. That's, that is a, an image that runs throughout the Bible. Um, and so um, we're not sort of deficient um, if marriage is not our experience for whatever reason. Um, there, are, there, are, there might be other images, other relationships, other experiences in life that that become a bit more precious to us. Um, I think we need to draw stamps. Thank you so much for your questions. Thank you so much, Em, for preparing for tonight and helping us think about the topic. If you have, if you still, if there's still a kind of question burning in your mind or you're sort of thinking, I don't really know how this applies to me, um, feel free to get in touch. Um, we're all in very different life experience situations, very different life experiences, but there is nothing new under the sun. So don't uh, feel afraid to, to come forward and, and just ask a question um, or chat to someone afterwards. And I will pray. Then, if you're able, I know it's, it, it's late, it's about half past nine, so we understand if you need to go. But if you are able to stay and help us do a little bit of setup for Sunday, that would be much appreciated. I'll pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are a good and generous God. You're a God who is more faithful than the best of husbands. You're a God whose love for us is more passionate than the most wonderful of lovers. You are faithful and good and loving and kind. And we pray um, that we might uh, know that in our experience, that we would, um, as we follow you in this world where there is suffering and, and pain, um, that we might know you and the satisfying relationship, the satisfying um, living water that Jesus offers. Amen.